this isn't indigenous education. This mm. is education. It has perhaps an indigenous lens or an indigenous heart to it, but the truth is all of our troops in this place. It's a different grief than from residential schools or day schools, because that grief really was about trauma. And this grief now in one generation is about both grief and joy. I knew that being witness to the stories would not be gentle trying to figure out how to share those stories in a way that a young reader could read them and not be traumatized. Then she said to me, but our kids are watching. And that was it. They are. And if I'm not willing to grow and take risks and deepen my own healing, then how can I ask that of them? Welcome to Walking in Relation, Indigenous Pathways Through Education. Within Indigenous communities, education has always been a community role and responsibility. Our interconnectedness and relationship to each other, to the land, to the waterways, the human, and the more than human, is what makes Indigenous communities whole. This gives us a holistic framework of how education could be if we shifted our gaze away from the Western colonial worldview. This concept of being together as one, learning from each other, is core to the understanding of Indigenous worldview. By pausing, listening, and reflecting on our surroundings, we will be able to start to understand how much colonialism has taken away from all of us, not just Indigenous people. We are inviting you to sit with us as we speak to Indigenous educators as they share their understandings and perspectives about education. I'm inviting you to open up your heart and your mind to leave stereotypes and judgments at the door. This work is asking you to be a witness and a participant in the hopes that we can shift your understandings of what education could be. Carolyn Roberts, I am so excited today to have Monique Grace Smith with us, talking to us about her work, and I am totally having a fan moment because I'm so <laughs> excited to have you here and have this conversation today. I'm really grateful to have woken up on this morning and to have heard the birds singing this morning and I walked in my yard and things are starting to come up through the earth and I think about all those who have been the stewards and the caretakers of the land and the water and the air here for generations and the little citizens in the classes of those of you who are joining us today who will be the future caretakers and stewards and how important that role is. I am um, the granddaughter of Noel Cardinal from Papikisi's First Nation on my mom's side and my grandmother was Isabel Gray and on my dad's side I'm the granddaughter of Raymond Smith and Beatrice Johnstone of um, Lakota, Scottish and Romanian and Gypsy ancestry and the proud mom of twins who are now 18 and in their first year my son's in Minnesota playing college baseball and my daughter's taken a gap year and it's really lovely to watch both of them 
on their own journeys of what life means to them and how they are beginning to understand how to bring their gifts forward to use them in a good way. So that's a little bit about me. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, that transition stage of them going off. Yes. It's hard. Nobody, I've been thinking about this so much because when my son left, it was a form of grief that I I wasn't prepared for because it's sort of like, you know, half of my heart is full of joy and then the other half of my heart is full of anguish. Mm-hmm. And how to have them come together, I, I honestly still don't know. And we're like, I don't know, nine months in. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's part of life. But for Indigenous kids, it's sort of a new part of life. And for us as parents, it's a different grief than from residential schools or day schools. Because that grief really was about trauma. Mm-hmm. And this grief now in one generation is about both grief and joy mm-hmm. and we don't yet i i I'll own this i don't yet know how to walk with that and when i talk with other indigenous parents who are on the similar journey they also don't yet know how to walk with this because there's so few role models <clears throat> who have been on this journey mm-hmm. of supporting our kids to take flight in a way that isn't necessarily new, but it's becoming more common, and that is new. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I was first introduced to your work with um, Speaking Our Truth, mm-hmm. and I was so thankful when I found it. I was like, oh, look what we have, and um, filled me up as an educator. I was uh, still in the school system as an educator when I first found it. So I'm really curious if you could share what brought you to this work, what brought you to the creation of the work and how did it unfold for you? Well, I've been talking about our history for 20 years. That that umbrella first kind of came to me back in 2000. And I remember actually going to Yellowknife to present at an education conference. And all I had was this like big piece of paper with that umbrella that I'd rolled up. <laughs> like, <laughs> So, you know, there was no technological, nothing fancy about it at all. It was like, what kind of metaphor can I create that will help people understand the weight and the breadth of the history and how how just that little handle holds it all up and that's our resilience. And so when I received the email from Andrew Woolridge from Orca Book Publishing to to write this book you know, the title if the, or the subject of the email was an invita- an idea, and I love ideas, so I opened the email right away. But then I read it, and I was like, no, 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 no. <clears throat> I had such a vis- visceral response to not wanting to write a book like this. And it was interesting because my wife came over, and she's like, why are you responding like that? What are you responding to like that? And I told her, and she said, I don't understand. She said, you've been talking about history for, you know, at that point, I think it was 15 years. And the importance of relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And what happened was I knew that I and my family would have to go on another level of our journey. And I wasn't sure at that time if I was ready to do that. I also knew that being witness to the stories would not be gentle. 
and trying to figure out how to share those stories in a way that a young reader could read them and not be traumatized. Mm -hmm. But then she said to me, so I gave her all my excuses, and she said, but our kids are watching. <clears throat> and that was it, right? Like, they are. And if I'm not willing to grow and take risks and deepen my own healing, then how can I ask that of them? And so I agreed to meet with Orca and left there with a contract with only six months to write that book. Whoa. <clears throat> and when the first draft was submitted, I got an email not long after, maybe two days later from the editor. And I remember I was flying, I was going to Prince Albert for work and I was flying from Victoria to Saskatoon and we stopped in Calgary and I opened that email and it said, you have to cut 20,000 words. I mean, really, Carolyn, I had never written nonfiction. I'd never written for that age. I'm not a trained writer. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so I closed up my laptop and I got on my next flight from Calgary to Saskatoon. And just as we were landing in Saskatoon, we flew over the river. And I remember thinking, the river runs through the land like the stories run through our blood. And then that's what I knew had to be in the book. Right, mm -hmm. was mostly the stories. So that's how the editing then of removing 20,000 words came. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That seems like a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> it was half the book for sure. When you got to the end point of that, did it feel like it told it in the way that you had intended it to be told? Yes. Yeah. And you know, interestingly, like on the very last phone call with the editor and the copy editor, I had pneumonia, the editor had pneumonia, and the copy editor had bronchitis. And in so many of our nations, there's teachings around our lungs, right? That our lungs is where we carry grief. And in Chinese medicine, it's very similar teaching. So when we think about that whole month of December, we were editing and re-editing the history chapter. Because it's like, how do we tell this history for a nine-year-old to read it? and be inspired to be a change maker instead of being traumatized. Mm -hmm. And how do you tell the truth in that way? And that was, that was why we kept coming back to that chapter. It's like, okay, we have to. Because also at that point in 2017, when it came out, there hadn't been much talk in books about, well, residential schools, but the trauma, the abuses, the unmarked graves, and also the use of the electric chairs mm -hmm. and then malnutrition. Mm -hmm. So we were embarking on telling truths that hadn't really been told, especially for that age group. It was much needed work. And I remember as an educator, just going, going <sighs> taking a breath. Okay, so this is this is a step for us in how and how we start to do the work within the system so that we can give this next generation that those pieces that that we weren't taught about, we weren't told about, we were mm -mm. outside of community. Yeah. So how do you see this work evolving within the education system with the support of your new beautiful work, the adaptation of Braiding Sweetgrass? Mm, I feel like it's like, like when we talk about sweetgrass, right? Like the teachings I have is that those three strands are about honesty and truth, about love and about kindness and that's really what's woven into braiding sweetgrass and and we've added pieces I've added pieces more about the truth 
in in the adaptation because when braiding sweetgrass came out in 2013 like if you think about you know in the last 10 years how much has changed around the truth mm-hmm. around these words decolonization indigeneity indigenizing programming like so much has changed and so to take that book robin wall kimmer's beautiful beautiful writing and weave it into today's world into today's knowledge into today's understanding and also to have calls to actions to young people like Mm -hmm. so you've read this chapter now what and not big calls to action always sometimes it's like please go for a walk someplace green and then you know in there we also talk then about the neurobiology of the brain when you're out in the forest what happens that first inch and a half of the hummus floor of the forest floor is hummus and when we smell it it lowers our cortisol that stress hormone and increases the oxytocin and dopamine so those of you who are listening if you have a big exam for your students or a really i know all the curriculum is important but that there are pieces in the curriculum that are really the building blocks or the roots of what's next if you have those take the kids outside before mm-hmm. lower that cortisol increase that oxytocin and that dopamine and if you can't go outside have plants in your class that they can water because it will elicit the same smell and if you aren't able to do that focus on kindness because the kindness has the same neurobiological impact beautiful and you know i mean after writing speaking our truth i wrote the novel tilly and the crazy eights and it was medicine for me but working on braiding sweetgrass has probably been the most joyous work I've done. Like, I just feel so honored and humbled to have been part of that project. Tell me, tell me the healing pieces. Tell me about the healing pieces of Tilly. Oh, of Tilly and the Crazy Eights? Yeah. Well, my best friend and I had done the road trip before um, speaking or before I started to work on speaking our truth. And so I had all the material. But then coming back to these elders... And even though there are stories woven in Tilly and the Crazy Eights that tell the truth, their joy, their humor, their ability to bounce back, their tenacity, and their love for each other, and their love for each other even with all the stuff, Hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. They just love each other. And so writing it was medicine, for sure. Yeah. And I really felt like they were with me, like one of the characters, Lucy, there's, you know, an adding to her character that I didn't write, but I was typing it. And it really was like Lucy took over and added a whole segment to who she is that I had not had as part of the character profile. And I was crying. And so, yeah, it was... It was a beautiful reminder after speaking our truth that love in some way always prevails. Mm. I really believe that. And, you know, the neurobiology, again, proves mm. that, right? That yeah. it uh, lowers the cortisol and it increases vasopressin, which what that does is increases the blood flow to the brain and to the heart. So students' abilities to learn is heightened, but it also increases the bonding the social bonding. So 
we talk so much with educators about self-regulation, you know, that very Western concept of self-regulation. Yeah. But really what it is, is filling a space with love and kindness. Because students, if they ever are experiencing trauma, you know, like we're recording this in the midst of a war, in the midst of the end of the pandemic, or what people are saying is the end of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so students have so much cortisol flooding through them in classes, as to educators. And the importance of focusing on love and kindness is really, really important in order for students to understand materials, mm -hmm. curriculum. And that... That brings me into the thought pattern. Um, when when I talk to new educators, I tell them the importance of relationship. And mm -hmm. it's the relationship you have with your students in order to be able to best support them. And yeah, so I wonder if we flipped that self-regulation colonial viewpoint and just let's start with relationships. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean in your classroom and with your students? Yeah, connect before connection before curriculum. And the relationship, yes, with each other, but also the relationship with the land, mm -hmm. right? Where, where, or, or, and the water where they serve, whether that is actually in the territory also where they live, but having a relationship with the land and the water and, and how does that support them in educating hearts and minds and spirits? A picture book that I often gift to people <laughs> is You Hold Me Up because it's mm. just so like, um, so critical in the importance of, of how we do this work and especially as Indigenous folks doing this work. How do we hold each other up to make sure that we can continue to do this work? So can you tell me a little bit about the process and the story behind You Hold Me Up? Mm -hmm. I was doing, if you read it, you'll see it's dedicated to Aboriginal Head Start. And um, I was doing, after the 20-year celebration, I wrote a reflections paper for them. And we were at this gathering, kind of releasing the reflections paper. And I said to everybody around the table, let's stand up and like just take a moment to honor all of those who have worked with Aboriginal Head Start who aren't with us today. Either they've passed to the other side or they just couldn't be with us. They Maybe they're in New Brunswick and they couldn't get to Vancouver. And the whole energy in the room changed. It was like all of those people came into the room. And that's what it seemed like was like we were just holding each other up. And so for me, You Hold Me Up really is the picture book about reconciliation. Like how do we want to be together? You know, you hold me up when you're kind to me when you respect me, when you play with me, when you laugh with me, when you listen to me, you know, just as a few examples. And so when I think about this journey of truth and reconciliation, that it can start with our littlest citizens um, in picture book format about how do we want to be together. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a huge part of this journey of truth and reconciliation is our relationships. So with the work, because you've been doing the work for a while. I, I know I started to talk about history before the year 2000, because that's when I first drew the umbrella. Wow. That's, you know, I know we're doing podcasts, but if people could see us, they would see these silver <laughs> lines through my hair. <laughs> those are called, those are called education markings. <laughs> well, they're getting more and more of them. So in the process then, in this process of the time that you've been doing this work, how do you see people 
taking up the work, um, teachers and educators. I know you do lots of presentations and you have opportunities to see how they're doing the work and taking it up from your invitations. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest changes I'm starting to see, and I really, whenever I talk, I talk about this and I advocate for this, that this isn't Indigenous education. This mm -hmm. is education that has perhaps an Indigenous lens or an Indigenous heart to it. But the truth is all of our truths in this place yeah. that we call Canada. But what I'm seeing is that in schools and in classes, there's not as much of a reliance on the Indigenous educators, the Indigenous educational assistants, or whatever term they're given, you know, success coaches. There's all kinds of different terms that those beautiful humans who contribute so profoundly to the classroom have, that they're not always being called in now to do the telling of the truth, mm -hmm. right? And, and I'm really grateful for that because all of us have been impacted by this truth as Indigenous people, whether we are survivors, intergenerational survivors of residential schools or day schools or the TB hospitals or the 60 scoop. Like this is the piece that I think people are also beginning to understand is that this truth isn't only about residential schools. Residential schools were the starting place of all of the traumas that have unfolded since that continue to potentially impact children, families, and those of us working in the field of educating hearts and minds and spirits. So that's one piece. I think that the allyship is is getting bigger. It's no longer a 12-foot steel aluminum boat. It's becoming <laughs> like actually a ship yeah. um, with more and more people coming on board and, and being willing to make mistakes because mistakes will be made. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's important for us as Indigenous people is that when mistakes are made, how do we support whoever made that mistake to learn to do things in another way, not to shame them? Because as soon as we shame somebody, everything shuts down. That was the other piece in Speaking Our Truth. In all the books that I read, I really work on not having shame be part of it. Mm -hmm. It's not an emotion that moves us forward. Mm -hmm. And we need to be moving forward here. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the biggest change I'm seeing is that the work is no longer landing solely. I think it's still a disproportion, but it's no longer solely landing on us as Indigenous people in the education realm. I like that how we how we come across it when people make mistakes. And I always think about how how would my elders in my life mm -hmm. um, talk to me if I had done this and then mm -hmm. using that thinking to be able to support them in a good way to be able to do the work. Right. Because, yeah, fear is a huge thing for educators. <gasps> I'm scared of doing it wrong. And then my comments, well, if you're scared of doing it wrong, if you don't do it, then nothing's going to change and we need it to change. So we need to at least be able to try. Have you have you had those kind of conversations with educators? Uh, almost every single time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, yeah. Especially if they're in a district where there has been something that happened and it's become very public. Mm. Or even, it is, if it, even if it isn't public and kind of mainstream, it's public in the district. Um, and an educator has been shamed, then the, the fear is monumental. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a big piece of the work, I think. Yeah, I agree. So 
a lot of a lot of this work with the podcast comes to um, how do we support other Indigenous folks in in holding them up, just like you do with all of the work that you do. Um, so if you were talking to a young Indigenous writer who wanted to step into this work, um, thoughts, advice, guidance, what would you what would you do for them? I'd say pay attention because the stories are all around us. Don't get caught in the square box of what a writer has to be. That a writer has to have a master's in creative writing or anything. Use your phone a lot. Use voice memo or something else. Record your story. If your way of telling something is orally, record it. I send myself it as an email. It then shows up in print and there's my first draft. I would say always have something beside your bed because that space in between of just about falling asleep, waking up, and also when you go for walks or you're by the water, that that's also when, you know, the gifts of the messages and the story ideas, and if you're working on a novel, the gift of conversation, that's when they come. And if we're not prepared, they go. They, right. I, I sometimes think, oh, I'll remember that, and then I don't. So to capture it in whatever way you can, to always yeah. have some way to do that. I have stuff still today in my little drawer here of ideas on, you know, restaurant napkins and because ideas come and we have to capture them. Mm -hmm. So that would be it. Pay attention and always have some way to capture and don't let the kind of Western construct of publishing define who or how you think you can be in the world that there's more and more publishers like orca books like graystone like heart drum which is part of harper collins in new york city mm -hmm. right that are sharing stories in different ways and i think about orca book publishing you know they've got leona princess and her sister gabrielle's book coming out mm -hmm. right how to be a good ancestor Wow. So there's lots of, you know, there's lots of opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's exciting times. Would you have any advice to, how about new educators that are stepping into the work? Indigenous or non-Indigenous or both? Well, let's start with Indigenous. Take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nourish your spirit. And there's a difference, right? Like self-care for me is like like going for a walk in my neighborhood, right? But nourishing my spirit is going to the forest for a walk or going to walk along the ocean or walking around the lake. They're different, right? Mm -hmm. They impact our neurobiology different and they impact our spirit different. And like when I go for a walk in the forest, those branches, they brush me off, right? And nothing I need to carry anymore. Yeah. So that would be my, my offering, I suppose is the right word, is is to really nourish your spirit and take care of yourself. And don't be afraid to say no. Mm. That you don't actually do have to do all of the work around Indigenous curriculum in your school or in your district. That sometimes we think we do and then we actually don't provide opportunities for others to to grow as well. And to to love it. Like, I mean, you're like historically the aunties and the uncles and the grandparents you're helping to raise up kids and oh my gosh what an incredible privilege mm -hmm. so enjoy it enjoy watching them discover and learn and laugh and 
play and mm -hmm. how about to our non-indigenous educators what advice would you give them I would still say the same take care of yourself um, it, it comes with different um, histories for sure and to to really be you know an active passenger on that allyship boat to to learn to continue to learn to continue to grow to you know if you need help with a piece of curriculum to ask for that help but don't turn it over to an indigenous person to do it there's a difference between asking for help and guidance and asking somebody to do it um and to read you know there's so many books now to really look at what's on your bookshelf and what do kids see when they come into your space? What do they see and how do they feel? And how are you paying attention to the neurobiology in your class or your school? To lowering the cortisol, and not only of Indigenous students, but of all students, so that the learning can be really vibrant. And then that fosters lifelong learning. So beautiful. Okay, one last question. <laughs> I'm, I'm just really super curious like what inspires you to keep doing the work that you're doing my kids and you know I had a dream maybe a year and a half ago or so that I was sitting on a dock and I had my feet resting on a stand-up paddleboard and this little person came kind of waddling down to the dock and they were carrying something and, and it was almost like it was like a gift box and they kind of stood there and there was like this just love like i think it was a grandchild and there was just this love and we were just kind of looking at each other and they had dark curly hair and these big brown eyes and dark olivey skin and they're like i got poopy pants <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like oh better go find mama and they just went like okay and they went tootling off and that dream is like there's so many metaphors in that dream like the box they were carrying like that's their bundle of gifts they came into the world with and they were like so excited with it and they also came in with poopy pants because we all come in with history right we all come in with stuff that has to be cleaned up and the more that we as adults can do the cleaning up before the gentler it will be for them they might not have a backpack they might not have a clothing they might not have a suitcase maybe all they have is a little bit in their diaper and i know it's a weird metaphor i know that but sometimes metaphors and the weirdness really land for people yeah and that bridge right you know between grandparent grandchild and mom that all of us are responsible in the naming of what's happening and the cleaning up of what's happening and what has happened and the healing. So that's who and how I do it for. And also whenever I visit classes, you know, the young authors who are in there and the young illustrators who are in there. That's why it's always so important when, when you read a picture book that you'd say very clearly who the illustrator is. Mm -hmm. Because sitting in every single class are future illustrators, and we must hold up the illustrators. Mm -hmm. So that's who, you know, and, and also for my parents, right? I feel like I'm kind of, you know, on a bridge 
I'm a you know descendant to my ancestors and an ancestor to my descendants and in that there's a reaching out of love and a reciprocal relationship that goes people can't see but I'm kind mm-hmm. of doing like the YMCA dance <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's what that's I think who I do things for like the next children's picture book that's coming out is called I hope and it comes out in September and and it really is a culmination of all the hopes I have for children you know and for us as adults I've been reading it every so often on pro d days because it's also for us as adults you know like I hope that when sad tears leave your eyes there's somebody there to catch them I hope that when you need a hug there's loving arms to hold you right like just these little things, I hope you remember to be respectful. That they're messages that society as a whole need right now. I'm super, super thankful for mm. all of the work that you do and holding us all up and bringing mm. us into this work. And I cannot wait for your books to come out. And I will, I will be the first one at Iron Dog Books to pick one up. <laughs> Have a beautiful day, everyone. Remember, may there be beauty to the left of you. May there be beauty to the right of you. May there be beauty below you. May there be beauty above you. May there be beauty behind you. And may there be beauty in front of you. All my relations. Walking in Relation is hosted by Carolyn Roberts and is produced and edited by Calder Chevery. Each episode contains original music by Carolyn Roberts and Jody Prosnick, featuring Tilden Webb on piano, Jody Prosnick on stand-up bass, Ramona Elke on drum and vocals, and Dante on shakers. Musical Engineering by Sheldon Zaharko and Monarch Studios. My heart is so full and so thankful to Monique Gray-Smith today for such a wonderful conversation and filling my bucket up with hope and love. And to Simon Fraser University's Indigenous Digital Media Grant, whose funding helped to support this project. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Take good care, everyone, and we hope that you'll come and listen again. 